This episode is brought to you by Loading Bar. Based in three locations, Stoke Newington and Peckham in London and Brighton on the South Coast, Loading offers video game aficionados somewhere to drink, relax and play. Visitors can expect a welcoming space full of free-to-play games, the latest consoles, fresh ground coffee, signature cocktails and video game-themed live events. Visit loading.bar for opening times and more information. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is an award-winning creator and writer of comic books. Born into a Staffordshire working-class family, he was a student of applied biology at Bath University when he started contributing to the prominent computer games magazine Amiga Power. Upon graduation, my guest joined the staff of PC Gamer, then left the magazine to go freelance in 2003. The following year, he published a highly influential manifesto calling for a new mode of first-person subjective writing about video games that he dubbed New Games Journalism. Two years later, he published his first comic book, Phonogram, which described music as a kind of transformational magic. After founding the PC gaming website Rock Paper Shotgun in 2007, my guest left journalism for good to work on comic books, including X-Men, Iron Man and Star Wars, a series for which he also created the character Dr. Afra. He has continued to work on his own projects, including Wicked and the Divine, Once and Future and Die, a horror series about tabletop role-playing games for which he received four of his six Hugo Award nominations. Welcome, Kieran Gillen. Hello, Simon. That's very nice. Uh, how, how have you been? I've been good. I just think that's probably one of the more complimentary ways you describe me. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw you, um, Kieran, a few years ago at an event in Nottingham, and uh, we were chatting before that event, and I remember you telling me that you felt like you'd wasted your time writing about video games. Did I? Um... <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did, because it's stuck in my memory, because you know, you're someone whose work has meant a lot to me personally, and I felt a bit sad about that. Do you do you still feel that way towards your your years writing about games? Not really. I mean, like, what, what year was that? Oh, must have been 
five or six years ago. God, what what part of the depression cycle was that one? <laughs> uh, like, I think there was little. There was a brief period of time. I think I stayed too long. Um, like, I think there's part of me shortly after I left RPS and stopped writing about games. I felt I should have left in 2007. Right. The further I go from that, the more I'm like, actually, now it's it's great. Especially that being older gives you perspective on everything. It's like I found myself, you know, I wrote yeah. about full time a video game for twelve years, and at the time that felt like an impossibly large achievement. Now it's just like a, it's not even half my career. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Yeah, everything gets more perspective, and I think yeah, yeah. I look back, I'm really proud of what I did. You know, I I was lucky enough to do what I loved for a very long period of time. Yeah, yeah. And then I stopped loving it and left. <laughs> <laughs> when you say that 2007 was a little bit too late, what was it that? What would you put that down to? What was it that was making you think, oh, I should have moved on a little bit earlier? I was basically, I just started doing my comics. So like I was, at that time I was planning various books I wanted to do after Phonogram. Um, and Jim came to me and said, hey, we should do this site, Rock Paper Shotgun. Jim Rossignol. And I felt myself compelled to do it. And they basically the effort I spent in those three years in RPS is effort I could have spent on doing those comics. So for quite a while, there was like a, a space of like three fingers on the bookshelf of books that didn't exist because I stayed in games. And, like, and I sort of resented that, especially because I never earned any significant money for those three years. <laughs> right. You know, RPS is obviously still existent and sold for quite a large amount of money when we sold it. So in the long run, it paid off. Yeah. But like, and also culturally speaking, I'm so proud. You know, like we, there's a, an August, it's not the right word for RPS. There's a, a thing that existed, which was begat by me, uh, John, Alan, Jim's nonsense. You know what I mean? So I'm proud of that. And I'm really proud of the idea. People who don't even know who I am get paid because of nonsense that we did. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, that is a good thing to put in the world. Absolutely. You, you, before all that, you you say that you, you're proud of the work that you wrote. What, what do you think your most, what's your most proud achievement from your years writing about games? What, or, you know, it could be a specific piece even. What do you look back on and think, oh, I'm glad I wrote that? Oh, it's tricky because it's like there's so much of it. I often think about there's something that games journalism good. They used to do it. There's a brief period about the late noughties where it started happening more often. And I think we'll probably touch on this later. But like games journalists rarely do the thing which, say, music journalists traditionally did. Like music journalists traditionally do two things. One of them is tell them about what you already love. Like here's the hot new, you know, here's this, the new U2 album, whatever. I would never say that. Uh, and two is here's the new hot new thing you don't know anything about and it's underground and you're going to get into now. <laughs> games journalists only really did the former like we rarely discovered anything and when we discovered it it was because a PR person sent it to us right, right. and there's a few places in my history where I know I went to bat for a game and changed its course like um, Uplink like I know introversion like they, they talk about this constantly but you know they sent this stuff not constantly it's not like an obsession um, you know he sent this and I picked up the Uplink CD got into it and it's like no this is great and I spread the word I made sure other journalists played it mm-hmm. and you know and that got them distribution the second it was reviewed in PC Gamer you know, an introversion as a company exists because I did what a journalist should do. Or well, he's a culture journalist. So that's the stuff I'm most proud of. So it's it's not it's that's less the writing. Yeah. But you know, RPS itself, probably the new games journalism was a giggle. I did a piece on the cradle. Lot, I found myself thinking I should compile all the stuff I wrote about immersive sims and just do it as a Kindle book, like uh, and get it out there. Because yeah, great idea. Yeah. I wrote a lot about those games. Yeah. And so it's sort of a weird oral history yeah. of it. Uh, could be interesting. So the the cradle was a level in 
Thief 2, was it? Thief 3. Thief 3, okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, what was I do remember that piece made a big splash. What was it that you were doing that was a bit different to what you'd done before with that? 12 pages on one level. <laughs> right, there we go. <laughs> Genuinely, <laughs> uh, it was early in the bit when it's post new games journalism. Yeah. Uh, and Mark Donald was basically hiring people to do bigger pieces about games after they came out. Now, this doesn't sound probably new to anyone because obviously now we're used to the concept of like hot takes after games and lots of coverage afterwards. Back then, it was previews or reviews. That's why new games journalism seemed radical. It was the it was really the idea. Let's carry on writing about games we like. Let's not just stop. Let's carry on talking about. Them. <laughs> so this was an early example of that. So I did maps to the game. I in, I because it was a kind of folded narrative in the cradle. It's very very petrifying. So by taking the clues and folding them into a straight narrative, we I did that. I did uh, in, developers and bits about how fear works and lot and across twelve pages. So it's a really big in depth thing. In fact. I believe PC Gamers just republished it actually. Right. Okay. So that kind of thing. And I like, and just the weird stuff, the stuff that no one else was doing. Yeah. Like, and of course, a lot of it is radical now, but doing it then was more so. I mean, the weird thing is like, what the entire podcast you're doing is basically does is kind of like the big backbone of like what I did. Like, at least that's one strain of what I did, which was let's talk about games and the way we talk about music or like film. And just, and we talk about the personal connection as well as everything else. Like that moment when I was playing, I don't know, Gauntlet with my mum and dad back in 985, you know, that kind of stuff is the stuff I was always into. So yeah. like, that's just the stuff that caught on, I guess. And the stuff that, you know, no one really connects to me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Which is no, nice. No, it's true. And yeah, you know, I want to honour that as well. You were just hugely influential, not only in supporting pulling out games that uh, that wouldn't have been, you know, had their day in the limelight otherwise, but also in influencing writers like me. Absolutely. Do you ever do you ever feel the the call back to that world? I'm sure you still play video games. Do you ever think, oh, I could definitely knock out an interesting two thousand words on this? This is the, this is going to press you, Simon. I in the, since I left video games, I was kind of out of video games playing seriously about 2013. Weirdly, Bioshock Infinite might be the last big game I properly could have a hot take on. <laughs> Right. And like, I was playing, and it's not, I still game. So I, I board game, like it was about 2015. Then I play role playing games. Well, obviously, yep. so there's still gaming is a big part of my life. But in terms of like games, I played Hades a bunch two years ago. Uh-huh. Really good. And at the moment, I've got a very big Marvel Snap addiction. Yes. But at the same time, there's enough games journalists in my life and the note here about games. I'm aware that like, oh yeah, I know what I'd be writing about right now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, when Disco Elysium was happening, I could very clearly say, oh, this is Planescape Torment. You know, you wrote a lot about Planescape Torment, Kieran. You'll be writing about this game because it's clearly your nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I sort of tell my friends, it's like, I quite like being the old man in the pavilion. You know, I've retired from the game. I'm sitting there drinking gin, <laughs> get, uh, you know, getting uh, various illnesses and just, whoa, 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 whoa. It's fun, you know. And you never, like, I've got, I've actually bought, I bought a new PC recently. Okay. So you never know when I might get back. <laughs> actually, I, I was writing about some RPGs recently, actually pen and paper ones. Yeah. I sort of did a sort of big critical piece about a game called Trophy Gold. So it's always there. Yeah. You know, and some of it's in the, you know, and what's died, but like an enormous 20 issues piece of games journalism. Yeah. Right, right. And then uh, just lastly, before we, we move on, was there anything about your time writing about games and working in the field of magazines and journalism that that then proved useful for you when you came to write about comic books or was it all was it all just a, a new learning experience actually just before this started i thought oh that's the other way i could have done the top five games as in the, the top five games i rip off in my comics <laughs> 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 you know which is fun um there's a bit there's a bit of my broad critic brain like i approach comics like a critic i tend to review really well 
and I can do really well because I do stuff that critics like. Ah, yeah. Which isn't the same thing as what readers like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a certain systemic approach. Like I tend to do multiple angle stuff. Mm-hmm. I tend to do stuff which plays the medium. I quite often use game elements. I did an incredibly complicated choose your own adventure comic for DC recently, which had, um, it was a Batman comic and explicitly the only way to complete it was not following the instructions at any point. You had to not turn to page 17 or whatever, you know, that was the, and of course by following the rules, you'll buy def- yada, yada, yada. So there's always stuff there, but occasionally you get like Solium Infernum, which I believe they're remaking at the moment. Yeah. It's an amazing game of like devils warring in hell. And my God, I've done a lot of comics, which are basically Solium Infernum. Right. You know, and the idea of people who are, gamers a lot of my characters are people who are clever and they interact with the world and they think about okay what could i do here and there's a bit like there's, there's a character right at the moment called mr sinister who's um, <laughs> a marvel character he's a incredible bad guy he's all is an awful fop but one of his things is he basically treats mutants as a resource and exploits them yeah. and his real thing is he looks at mutant powers and thinking how can i combine them in stupid ways so it's like you know i know I, I, like so that's a gamer brain, you know, it yeah, takes yeah, Cyclops yeah. who has eye blasts and a character called Eye Boy who's covered in eyes. And suddenly I've got a floating drone with lasers <laughs> yeah. everywhere. It sounds like the new Zelda. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like, there's a lot of that, like, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of that kind of play. In fact, I did an entire story with Mr. Sinister. basically he clones another mutant and uses them as save points <laughs> and he's safe scumming his way through the Marvel universe. So like they're part of, I mean, games are always part of my, um, vocabulary in the same that everything else is. Yeah. I'm certainly not hidden from being a gamer is the best way of putting yeah. it. Wonderful. All right, Kira. So yeah, you, you mentioned there that I've asked you to put together your, your five games you want to put on your ideal idealized video game console. Now you you wrote to me before this and uh, you've got quite an unusual criteria by which you put your five together. Do you want to just explain that before we get into your first choice? Yeah, I'm sorry. I swear that there'll be heartfelt stuff as well. But like, um, as I said earlier, like I've done this, basically the concept of the show so many times in so many different ways. Don't say that, Kieran. This no, is no, no, fresh. No, no, no. In a good way. And that's why I'm going to hedge for stuff we haven't done before. Yeah, yeah. So I've done my favourite games and my most influential games. I've gone the games that define me as human being. So I've done these articles so many times. And if you yeah. want to, you can Google them up. And I can swear anyone who knows me will go, for God's sake, Kieran, don't talk about Deus Ex again. <laughs> so I thought, okay, let's get a different angle. And I thought, like, it's a perfect console. So what does a perfect console do? By definition, any games on it will be perfectified, which is a real word. <laughs> um, so I'm choosing games which were broken, which I really loved and were important to me and influential at various times and spoke to the moment. But like the idea that I could put them in the console and we finally have the game as they should have been. Or I would have hoped. Because like so much of being a gamer is being hoping. I mean, I always talk about the my first experience with The Hobbit, the Spectrum uh, text adventure, which is my first real game I sort of remember. Mm-hmm. My friend told me about it for weeks before it started. And oh my God, there's the spiders and I've defeated the trolls by way to dawn and all that kind of stuff. I couldn't be more excited. When I finally saw it, it was just like text. He never told me it was just text. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the yeah, crushing yeah, yeah. disappointments, which <laughs> I think actually are telling why we love games. Yeah, yeah. That's my theory. Yeah, that's good. I mean, there's definitely a case to be made that the, a game is in its best form when you're on your way home from the shop and it's still in your rucksack and you're like, because you've just got this you know, platonic idea of Deus Ex or whatever it is. So yeah, I like that. It's Will Wright, you know, Will Wright say you start playing the game when you pick up and look at the box. You know, that's the, you know, because games are an imaginative space to explore. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Okay, well, with that in mind, uh, we'll come to your first game, which is from 1987. Do you want to tell us what this game is and why you love it? This game is Mike Singleton's Dark Scepter, which I suspect many people listening to this won't know. In fact, even people who've played it may not remember it. 
Mike Singleton is like a genuine, like classic British designer in the 8-bit scene. Uh, his masterwork in the period was Lords of Midnight, which is still, for my money, the best Lord of the Rings game ever made. Because it, ta- it basically just looks at Lord of the Rings plot and turns it into a game. And that's the other interesting about 80s game designers, like no one knew what they were doing. Yeah. So in other words, like the idea of genre didn't really exist in the way yes. we have it. So they just threw stuff on the, okay, this is a bit of a Tolkien game, but Tolkien without understanding RPGs, or rather not even thinking about D&D as an influence, just thinking about fantasy. And that's what Mike Singleton's 80s games were. <laughs> Lords of Midnight is a genuine masterpiece. I played it at the time, didn't understand it at all. Played it like in um, 2008, 2008. And it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I played it a bunch circa then. So it still holds up. So what do you, what do, you do in it? What's the kind of game is it? I'm not familiar. <laughs> Lords of Midnight is basically, you, you've got a ring, right? Uh, okay, yeah. it's not a ring. Uh, it's a foot. It's really hard to describe because basically it's got, it's a technical showpiece on, on about on the level of Elite. It, the only reason people don't talk about it as much is it's not on the BBC. Therefore, the posh boys never played it. Because uh, <laughs> I'm at it again. Um but basically, you are playing, you can skip between all these kind of characters you're playing, and they can look around and they travel and they recruit other characters and they get armies and they march the armies around. And in the far north is almost armies of, let's call them orcs, and they're all marching south and they're trying to destroy your fortress to the south. If you defeat them in battle, you win. But also, you've got a magic, one of the characters, the magic ring. If you can get your magic ring around all the armies and not caught and not eaten, you also win. So it's, a, it's it's Lord of the Rings plot, but turned into a mechanics. Right, you know right. what I mean? Like, and that's why it's poetic. It, it makes it does everything Lord of the Rings does without any of the specifics. Yeah, Lock Scepter is a bit like that, but broken. Was it a sequel or was it unrelated? I think it's entirely unrelated. Okay, and it, for me, it's important because I got my first I got my first computer in eighty five Commodore sixteen, which is terrible. <laughs> like I, I thought about picking a Commodore sixteen game, and why would we do that to anybody? <laughs> and like I think the next year or like maybe the year after. Uh, I got a Spectrum Plus 2, which was my first, you know, beautiful computer. The Spectrum is a wonderful machine. And I just started getting games magazines. Like, I was originally Sinclair user, and then uh, you're Sinclair. And I saw the advert for this game, and the screenshots are beautiful. Now, if you look at them now, you're not going to think they're beautiful. But the Spectrum had certain technical limitations, as in it was rubbish. Dark Scepter had, like, sprites the size of the screen, scrolling around left to right in full color, and they're magnificent. And you're like, what? The-? And the cover is great. It's a classic piece of like, here's a wizard dude with a scepter. Look how dark that scepter is. Wouldn't mind some of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I fell in love with this game. And especially like the control screen. The way you do it is you give orders to individual people. And you've got a list of, I didn't have time to look it up beforehand, but I think there's three columns and like 10 on each. Let's say they got 30 different orders you can give in- to individual people, like travel. And that's like t- travel, petrify, persuade, or like so, so, probably seduces it on there, but it's that kind of thing. Yeah. So you look at all these things you could do. Now, in practice, they walk very slowly from left to right and occasionally bump into each other and get stuck in fights that don't fight. <laughs> they're just stuck there staring at each other forever. And then, like, and no, you have no idea if any of the things they're doing are doing anything. Yeah. Are they persuading her? Doesn't matter because the guy just killed me anyway. You know what I mean? It's such a beautifully, it's, a, it's, it's halfway between Lords of Midnight and Tim and Nog. And there's another game you wouldn't have heard of and no one will remember. You know? And the, the point being is there's so much stuff clearly there. Uh-uh. Like, mate. Uh, but, is anything doing anything beneath the hood? I don't know. I don't know. For what I heard. Yeah, yeah that's like, and that was one of those earliest games that was like, my aesthetic is there because it's mm-hmm. so nerdy. Let's be, let's be honest, it's really nerdy. But there's so much like, oh my God, you can do all these things mm. and you've got so much freedom and the potential, like the first moment. So if you follow me through, there's so much of what I love is broken to some degree. Even the stuff which I really love, like Deus Ex, 
is in some degree broken. <laughs> and also, this, I mean, this period is me falling off with games and games magazines because the games magazines raved about it. Um, mm. Wobbling my hands. First time a games mag lied to me, not quite sure. But like, I, I was buying like games magazines, secondhand games magazines. Mm. So I like looked in the local papers and got the stuff from three to five years ago and read all the old Your Sinclair's before oh, I cool. had it. Yeah. Like, you know, I was really weirdly serious and obsessed for like a 12 or 13 year old. Yeah. And that's what Dark Scepter was. That's sort of me entering to proper. It's not buying Elastica. I knew buying Elastica was cool. I knew buying Dark Scepter made me a more com- committed person than, I don't know, playing Defender, which I also loved. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So tell me, how did you get this uh, Commodore 16? Were, you, were your parents into, you know, giving you computers and things like that? No, I mean, it's like, I tend to think, like, I was born in 75. I tend to think 1985 is quite late for someone in my generation who was a complete nerd to get a computer. I say, you know, describe my family's working class and I would as well. But like, it's not like we were living in the street incredibly poor or anything. Sure. My parents are kind of technophobes. It took to 1985 to, I think, they're thinking, you know, maybe this is a good thing. Yeah. And I swear, this is, I swear, we, on that summer holiday that year, we played the, all played Gauntlet together. Oh, okay. As a family. This is one of my, if I was doing the, the, uh, the, the Danny Puddy's version of being very nice, you know, that I swear the fact we had this family moment of Gauntlet made me realise they got a computer later that year. Was that, was that in an arcade somewhere there? Yeah, yeah. It's like a, a Butlin's holiday camp. Lovely. It's Gegness or something. It was somewhere down in the south. I I played a lot. Like Green Beret, AR Kung Fu. And Gauntlet, they were the games of the summer. Right. Oh, amazing. And so, and what did you, what did your folks do? Uh, my dad was a builder. Yeah. Uh, my mum worked in banks. Okay. As in, as in, she worked in a bank. She wasn't a bank robber. Right. <laughs> and then, did you have to do much of a campaign then to get this this Commodore a day? By that point, Gauntlet had persuaded them. I think it must be quite passive because I think they saw it around. They saw it was more. I mean, contest. My dad was suspicious of microwaves the day he died. That's the sort of like. You know, it's not like that ultra technophobes, but there was a kind of like, you're sure about it. Right, yeah. And like my best mate, he had a, like he must have, he had an, an older brother, therefore he had a spectrum. So I was exposed to stuff. Yeah. And they saw that how much I must have loved it. Because like the local swimming pool, mm-hmm. like they have the arcades. And so every time we went swimming, I'm in the arcade staring at, you know, whatever they have there. Yeah. And the excitement of, I don't know, Dragon's Lair when you first see it. I've never seen anything like that. Yeah, right, right, right. So they knew I just really cared. And when the Commodore 16 was also played with a bunch they knew they weren't wasting it, so the spectrum was like an, a logical next step. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm interested as well what relationship music had at this time, because you mentioned, uh, you, you know, obviously you also re- freelance for music music magazines, and I associate you with being a music journalist, uh, you know, not as much as a video game journalist, but that's definitely an aspect of you. And But it's quite unusual, I suppose, to be into, into sort of indie bands and all that, as well as very nerdy fantasy 8-bit games <laughs> where did all that come from i've got a theory that basically the reason why i love almost all the stuff i love and basically they tickle the same thing pop music is a place where people enter fantastic personas and become someone else mm. they, they get in the magic circle of music you're allowed to like reinvent yourself and you know yeah yeah that's my theory i came hard into music later right. like i my my preteens is pretty nerdy i love the music that was around me and i grew up like it was very much a soul family. There was a lot of Motown, a lot of soul, a lot of Stax Records stuff. You know, there was always music about, but it was never quite the obsessional pop culture stuff. Mm-hmm. And I always remember, like, in my early teens, um, I started inching towards it. I didn't buy the music papers because I thought that um, someone would stop me buying them. Right. Was cool enough to read the music papers? You know, that, that, that's an amazingly insecure. Someone kicks the enemy out of your hands. Not for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Really. Uh, 
and that's so i came to it late like um it must have been like 15 16 before i started like buying the music papers yes. and like i was into i got into metal like a little earlier like 13 14 so i started wearing a lot of black right right and there was a segue into being into going to golf i was like a sister the mercy fan in that still am yeah, yeah. Uh, and then segued into sort of the indie stuff like circa 93 really right okay interesting and it was also for me it's like the basic thing i did as a games writer was I lifted techniques in the music press and applied them to games. Yeah. That, that, it, it, that's one. The other side is I really love games. So I, you know, I don't think many people bought old games magazines to study them, but right. you know, I was doing that at, at 12. Yeah. So that's one side of me. And the other side of me is the, in techniques from other places, which of course it's all, you know, new games journalism was just that, wasn't it? It was yeah. just me going, Hey, other people do yeah, this. Yeah. We could do it to games. Fantastic. Did you want to be a writer this time? You know, you're obviously studying, getting these old secondhand magazines and stuff. Is it, were you thinking, I want to make this? It's complicated. Like, I do. It's really complicated because I remember I've I written stuff just to see if I could write reviews before. The Chaos Engine was the first game I ever reviewed oh, wow. for myself. Bitmap Brothers. Yeah, yeah. obviously. Like, don't stop me about the bitmaps. There's an entire podcast there. I don't think I considered like, writing as a goal for a working class person. I had actually worked for Amiga Power before I realised I could become a writer. I was earning money as a professional writer because there's this moment I read um, England's Dreaming, Jonathan Savage's book on punk rock, and there's a bit where John Savage is in the toilet at his work, putting together a fanzine to let the A bombs in his head out. To quote, I think that was the quote. Yeah, and me sort of go, wait, wait, that's me. You know, that's what I'm doing, and therefore, the, the, and no way that means if he can do it, that means I am now to do it. And that said, that, that's the weird thing. That's after I'd worked for Mega Power. So I'd almost like passive tense myself as I'm doing it. You know, I'm writing for money, but I'm not allowed to think of myself as a possible writer. Yeah. So I think it must have always been in my head, yeah. but not really. To, I couldn't allow myself that power, really. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Almost, that's one reason why I tend to like, when I ever talk to school kids or speak to people who in any position, it's very much like you be awareness of what the cage is. Mm. The cage is the stuff we don't question. Yeah. It's invisible. I mean, I'm, you know, you know me. I've got called pretentious a lot, and I was kind of—I used to bristle a lot at that. Mm-hmm. If I wasn't pretentious, I'd be working on a building site now. Right. You know, to so some degree, there is. For me, it always sounds like know your place, right. and I got quite angry there. And I, you know, to a lesser degree now, I'm a bit chill because I am very. I, I can't use the word. I, I can't use the word because it's a mild swear word. <laughs> I much prefer being called wanky, which you can edit out, <laughs> rather than pretentious. Because I definitely am wanky. Wow. I mean, that's it's so interesting. But you know, you say it is sad that you had that feeling, but also, I suppose that gave you like the this outsider's energy of like I can come in and actually, you know, I'm not part of this establishment. I'm not supposed to be here. I didn't go to the kind of schools where you're meant to then go on to become a journalist or whatever. So. So I don't have to play by those rules, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, like, I'm very punk rock, Simon. <laughs> I don't I think something Jim Rosinol, my friend, co-founder of RPS and, and game developer, he, there's this distinct uh, provinciality to me. Right. And like, in that, and that's the sort of outsiderdom in that kind of, that the weird kid, in, the, the weird kid who's gone to the big city and he's always slightly at the edge of the party in that way. Yeah. Um, and it's good. It's where my writing comes from. Yeah. That kind of um, an awareness. It's not always like this. Yeah. Yeah. It can be very valuable. Definitely. All right, Kira, we better come to your second game then, which is from uh, 1994. Tell us about this one. Okay, this is uh, UFO, UFO, Enemy Unknown, or alternatively XCOM, as you probably know it better as.
this was the first game I ever reviewed for money. How did that come about? <laughs> I, tell you, I tell this story and, and I, I, this isn't how it works anymore. And it, well, not really how it worked there. I used to, basically, a guy came up to me in a nightclub and said, do you want to write for Amiga Power? <laughs> this doesn't happen, I swear. Like, Amiga Power had a really busy letters page. Like, it was very funny. It was, uh, and I was a regular letter writer because this is just as emails happening. Uh-huh. And it's basically, anyone who's just gone to university got given an email address, probably. Yeah. And they had no one to write to. And Amiga Power had an email address. So a load of, basically, students just spent their time writing Baroque and stupid emails to Amiga Power. I was one of them. Did you write under your own name or did you use a pseudonym? The Monster, as in C, short for Cookie Monster. Because yep. um, oh, that was my, my coding name because I, when I was coding back then. Because you couldn't, I wanted to be Cookie Monster on the score table, but you could only enter C Monster right. because it wasn't space. And that was my accusation of the failure of video games because they failed to accommodate the, what I wanted to do. So it was implicitly my accuse <laughs> at the industry. Pretentious, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm saying nothing. <laughs> so, any, so anyway, in, in a nightclub, someone came up to you and said, are you Sea Monster? Paul Mellick, who was the writer on Amiga Power, or a writer on Amiga Power at the time, he um, was the DJ in the nightclub. So I was going to the nightclub anyway, and I didn't realise Paul was the DJ, but no was actually Paul the writer for ages. Right. And his editor, Cameron Stanley, basically said, hey, that guy, you know, asked if he's interested in writing. And I said, yes, obviously, because I like... I wrote it for the next year, and I describe it like playing Triangles and the Beetle. Because Amiga Power, I cannot stress how much I love the Amiga Power. Like, it was my everything. Yeah. Like, it is just playing Triangle. I wrote the tips. I did an occasional review. On the other hand, I played Triangle and the Beatles. <laughs> and the first game was XCOM. And XCOM is, as everyone knows now, it's this amazing piece of uh, tactical-level combat with a strategic world-scale planning. It, this comes from Julian Gollop, who was one of my heroes. Uh, like, even before then, he was like... Chaos is my official favourite game ever. Like, if in a different show, I talk forever about Chaos. I, I was less a Rebel Star guy, but still good. Lords of Chaos, also strong. So, And he really basically made tactical games which played at the speed of arcade games. Mm, that was yes. the thing. He was like um, advanced, advanced Wars before Advanced Wars. And XCOM reviewed incredibly on the A1200. It really, it's, and it's, it's a classic design. So I got to review on the A500. Doesn't work. Like, just doesn't. It took like half an hour or something. I like, went forty-five minutes to do one turn, like the computer thinking it was just broken. <laughs> oh no! And I'm still not sure if it was just my. And I tried it on the PCs. It was slightly quicker if you had more memory. Yeah, but it just didn't work. So I, re- like, I, re- I mean, I always remember like me sitting on the floor of a friend's uh, apartment. She-, she and her boyfriend smoking mushrooms on the bed, whilst I'm on the floor writing frenziedly in the this piece that I got it all eventually down. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I like it to be better on the perfect machine is obviously because like people bought that thing, and for me, like as a journalist, it was always the job was the reason why I don't feel bad about writing bad reviews is because money games are expensive. I remember like spending like like ten quid on the Dark Sector, I think it was, mm-hmm. like because I actually bought it rather than pirating it. Right, <laughs> you know that's a lot of money for like a kid in like nine eight seven. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of part of me is you know money matters, and if you actually you probably Google that review and it's um. It's full on me from the start. That's my favourite thing. As in, the guy who started Dark Scepter, who obsessed with the games magazine, comes in. I think the first like, there are no more heroes. Uh, like, it's the first line. And the, and the word salivary smear is in the first paragraph. It's um, pretty full on. That's very nice. Did you find that you had to have your friends smoking drugs in the room with you to write like that right from the start? <laughs> I feel like it, it has that energy, doesn't it? But yeah, it definitely felt like the right way to do it in a kind of like music writer fanzine way. Like the- Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think also it's petrified. Like, you know, it's my favourite magazine. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. idea of 
can I come in and not be bad? A lot of pressure when you get those gigs, let alone the very first gig you ever get is for the place that you, you long to write for. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? A few years on, I remember so many people I've got, I've obviously someone getting their first job is a thing, but so many people I've given a first job to never hired again. It was that, and it's that kind of like they must, in the hearts of hearts, know that I think they blew it. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm really actually weirdly some. Like, I was talking about Richard Cobbett. Richard Cobbett's first piece. He was an amazing writer. Yeah. <laughs> um, first piece wasn't good. <laughs> he made a couple of mistakes, and eventually, obviously, you hired him again. But you know what I mean? Like even really good people like not do what is wanted. Yeah. 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 I did. I. I think I was bad for eight years. <laughs> <laughs> you were never bad. <laughs> oh, no. No, that makes it sound like I was fishing. Don't do that. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Right, so you're you're at Bath Uni at the time. Why were you why were you studying biology? Good question. You don't really know if you like science until you do it at degree level. Because yeah. it doesn't you know what I mean? Like and on an arrogant level, I was like, I don't need to do an English degree. Like I'm always gonna read books. I don't need to do that as a degree. Already got that in the yeah, yeah, sort of, <laughs> in the uni of life. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I could go to the I could steal books in the shop. I never steal a book in my life. But you know what I mean? Like and so I've got to discover I like because I'm good at it. Maybe yeah. I like it. And I, I don't like it. Oh, I did. I worked in a lab for a year, and it's, it's, it was all. It was just not my brain couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. Like, um, so in my final year at university, I basically went full on it, trying to be a writer. Oh, so it gave you a push? Yeah, it was explicitly like I need, I can't do a real job because I haven't got, I'm not good at it. <laughs> so I've got to like find a way to cheat my way out of doing a real job, right. and that's always. That's the weird energy to me in terms of I work very hard, as people tend to say, by working very hard just so I don't have to work hard. Yeah. And so I did fanzines. Amiga Power had closed down by then. Like, I was doing a lot of stuff. And I worked bars after I left university, applied for jobs, and eventually got a job. At P eventually, PC Gamer said yes. Right, very nice. And yeah, tell me about that. What was your first day like? I'd say my interview. My interview was moderately infamous because people say I arrived in a bright green suit with a Slayer t-shirt. Oh, nice. And I don't own a Slayer t-shirt. But you own the suit. <laughs> I, know, I know the green suit. I was going for a period where like, I wore suits right. and like secondhand suits because somehow I, there was various bands who wore suits like Dexies and stuff. Yeah. And in my head, it's like, I look business and cool. Despite having really ridiculously long hair. Yeah, yeah. The idea of like, can you imagine this weirdo 21 year old? You know what I mean? Like, you can see exactly who this guy is. It's a good policy. Tom Wolfe, the, the American, the very famous American journalist, I think wore a white suit from the 60s and just throughout his career just because he thought, uh, you know, it's a good way for people to remember who he is. 
also about Jonathan Nash, who was one of my other heroes from uh, Your Sinclair and Omega Power. He turned up to what his first interview at Your Sinclair with um apparently with a to call a sandwich board on and right. giving little flags out to people. <laughs> Didn't get the job. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so did they, did did they make you do a sort of mock review then when when you turned up for your interview? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, like, I, I did one with a piece. I think it was uh, Curse of Monkey Island. I think right. that was the one I sent in. Yeah. Um, but they they literally sat you down for 15 minutes and say, write a review in 15 wow. minutes. Like a university exam or something. Yeah. Literally, like it was 150, 200 word review. Right. <laughs> That's weird. Uh, and it's sort of thing is weird. It's the sort of stuff I could do. Yeah. Like I, I'm good at speed. That was always the thing. Like, I'm very bad at procrastination. But like the actual writing for me was always like very intense, right? But yeah, it was interesting. I'm always, and especially early on, I was so driven. Yeah. I wrote a lot, and up to about 2000, I was um, I was writing 37 pages for a piece of game in a month, wow. plus about another 10 to 15 pages of freelance. Oh. I was obsessed, and then I broke and slowed down because yeah, that's when I started getting to comics as I realized why am I doing this for future? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they don't love me. <laughs> well, what was it like in the office at that time did you have i mean P- pc gamer is obviously very famous still today but it was even famous there and you were definitely part of the reason it became famous i think but it had a lot of rivalries with other magazines pc zone and all the others what was were you were you aware of all of that or how did that manifest oh man I, like i was just generally thinking about if i had to do like a ridiculous literary novel like the pc gamer period would probably be the best place to mine because they're just such weird personalities and so much like ego in such a small space of stuff that people don't care about. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, it used to be, it was a wilder magazine before I joined. Like, because mm. everyone talks about the 90s being this weird era of epic cocaine mountains in Egypt or whatever. Mm. And that was over by the time I arrived. Like, the PlayStation boom was calming down a little. Like, the, they were still getting huge sales, but like, the PR party was calming. But at the same time, it was a hard drinking magazine. Before I was there, they used to like sleep in the office occasionally because they were working too late. That had stopped by the time I was arrived. Right. But like I was in the pub most nights. I regularly went, I went clubbing several times a week. I arrived, came into work, hung over. You know, all the kind of bad games, sorry, the bad journalist imaginings was right. there. Yeah. It was a very, I always thought like Zone was the laddier mag. Right. And we were a bit more like pretentious. There's the, saying that word a lot. But at the same time, like it was still very laddy in the larger yeah. scale because it's the late nineties. There's a lot of stuff in the in the air there. I always remember something like one of my friends said to me. Obviously, future's not like this now, but like it was in the nineties. And as you inched into the north, certain things stopped happening. People being more professional is probably a, the good way of putting it. But less pirate ship is the other way of putting it. When PC Gamer walked into the pub, it was very much like the bigger boys on the on the swings or something. But we were right. We, we, we just we were and not that it was deliberately intimidating, but we were just loud. We were loud and joking and very clearly having a good time. Right, right. You're ste- stealing Edge's lunch money. No, actually, it was us and Edge really. <laughs> right, uh, you know, us and Edge really the ones with that, that sort of level of like, oh, we're people. Right. I'm going to steal a Steve Cohen story because it was us sitting in one corner with Steve, Steve Cohen off edge at the time, and in the other corner, PC answers. And it's like everything was empty. And I just sort of said, um, almost it looks like we're about to fight them. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve minds banging one of their heads into the table, going, Where's your answers now? <laughs> but it was, it was fun. It was bad for you. I would never do it again. Uh, but pirate ship would be the best way to describe it. I'm, um, I'm fond of the period. Even though I like, I was a weirdo, you know what I mean? Uh, I was definitely like a sort of a bit outsider even then. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Interesting. Right, why don't we come to your, your third game, Kira, which is, uh, I guess, from this era, 1999. Tell us about this one. Outcast. Outcast. 
I picked this actually. We're sort of we're doing the bio stuff slightly leading in, but like the games roughly follow my game career, including my relationship with basically broken games. This was really quite early. Uh, Outcast basically is the game. You play this guy called Cutter Slade. Is that? Oh my god, I remember his name. That's shocking. Uh, I, I might be wrong there, but it's something like Cutter Slade. And basically, a guy you get transported to another dimension, and you end up exploring it and finding weapons and doing a non-linear piece of arcade adventuring. It is powered by a voxel engine, an early voxel engine, so it's very looked very different. It was very demanding because it pretty cards didn't do anything for it, and basically it worked like Zelda. It was basically Zelda for ner- for like PC nerds, but with all the stuff that PC games like was doing more then, like being a bit more freeform. Situations were more emergent in terms of like you had the AIs as uh, living entities in this bio system or whatever. I'm so I'm slightly overselling, but it was that kind of game, and I always remember it partially because. Okay, this is something I'm going to stick to around. PC Games magazines often have something to say, we only review games which are signed off as complete. <laughs> now, a, you may know there's a lot of wiggle room in that sentence. <laughs> yes. I never, I never reviewed Outcast. Outcast wasn't complete. <laughs> and it wasn't like... And trust when it came out, it was still really buggy and barely worked. <laughs> but it doesn't... It's really buggy and dearly worked in a very PC game way. And the reason why I, I sort of think about this is partially the, the weirdness over exclusives and the way that works in the industry. And the weirdness of these reviews and people... And occasionally just a really interesting game doesn't land. And I think about this game and I think if it... Because it didn't work on most people's PCs is the biggest problem. But if we could make that work, I think we could have changed the course of games history. Really? Because basically, I my response to like Breath of the Wild, which obviously is a great game. I'm not... Even though my anti-Zelda bias isn't going to, so, you know, bite on that hill. But my response to that and obviously the Metal Gear Solid earlier, if you, you know... Was that, oh, you've finally taken the ideas from PC games and doing them. <laughs> you know, you finally admitted we were right, yeah? It, it, you understand the subtext of this, this, your approach, yeah? I know you've done it much more polished than we ever did, but... And if they did it right, it would have been like... A, it would have introduced a, this sort of console play to the PC kids. And, like, made you realise this is beautiful and interesting and freeform and smart. But mm-hmm. it, it was, the, the ideas would have gone the other way as well. Mm-hmm. So, so we would have got Breath of the Wild-esque stuff maybe like 15 years earlier. Like the idea that, that but just by demonstrating this this actually is a viable way of doing a game, yeah, yeah. it could have changed gaming history. And that's that's what I, uh, you know, that's why I, I sort of picked it. Can I just say, if this had been a blog post like on RPS, you would have had 1,500 comments or on Eurogamer, just PC and console kids hurling insults. Fight, fight, fight. <laughs> Breath of the Wild owes it all to Outcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an Outcast clone. <laughs> <laughs> a game that, that didn't even work by your own admission. <laughs> Definitely. But, you know, it, it, it's got a guy called Cutter Slade. But yeah. Voxels. So it's also the one word, also it speaks so much about what I thought is what I loved about games magazines. For about a decade, we had it, PC Gamer did a top 100 games of all time I, I, they may still do it every year I, I don't mm. know it's been a while since I checked we had it as the 57th best game of all time every year it was always the 57th best game of all time and it's become this very specific running joke that required you to be a certain sort of reader to realise wait wait yeah, yeah. and by the end it was we were sort of saying it's like in a very real literal way we consider this the 57th best game of all time <laughs> certainly no better certainly no worse and I was so disappointed when they finally changed it for me that was when PC Gamer died <laughs> Oh dear! Right, let's um, let's come to your manifesto, Kieran, which was responsible for for an awful lot of bad writing by me. And me. <laughs> but, <laughs> what um, I mean, but it was it was really meaningful, and it was an important moment. I think going, hey, this you know, the way that music writers 
like Lester Bangs used to write about music in the 60s and 70s or whatever. We could do that for games. What was it that, that caused you to write that? And just tell us the story about where you published it as well and how quickly it started having an effect. I came over from the pub one night and legend has I was drunk and I wasn't drunk. I think it was me, Tim Edwards and John, uh, John, John Hicks. Any one of them could have killed me, but they didn't. And I wasn't drunk because I was obviously I was not drinking at all for like a year and a half then. <laughs> and I just wrote this blog post and stuck it online. And I remember Jim saying uh, the morning after, like, Kieran, even for you, this is the most pretentious thing you've ever done. <laughs> and I swear I came to a more practical point because it's like what I wrote was very me. But like I knew that McDonald's, who I mentioned earlier, was going to do a new thing in PC Gamer. And he want, what he wanted to do was basically write about games after they came out. <laughs> so my blog post was really me saying, hey, there's money here. It's like soon people will be doing this yes. and paying you for it. Start thinking like in this way now right. because there will be commissioning editors wanting to pay it. That's one side. The other side of it is me going, and I want to shape the stuff you write. If Mark Donald gave a commission, it would it'd probably feel slightly different to that. That was me. I was out in the magazine by that point. Uh, I was freelance. So, so it's definitely me kind of sticking my oar in. And in retrospect, it's like what I was proposing wasn't as, maybe wasn't as radical as people took it as. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I said earlier, like, it was a very weird time in terms of like how limited what games writing quote unquote was. So you, you published this thing on your own blog website, wasn't it? And, um, and then how quickly did you realize that it was being shared around and actually that people were really taking its lessons to heart? I think it was when I started getting people dissing it. Right. Like, oh, right. Especially because the, the real thing is like, what I actually said in the piece is let's write travel journalism to imaginary places. Yes. It's not necessarily the autobiographical writing about your life stuff. It's about, Let's write what it's like to be in Hyrule. Right, right. Like reportage, basically, for these yeah, yeah, places. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, so that's a, and then in some ways, if you look at that, like the after action reports, if you look at actual plays, you know, that's all what I'm talking about. The idea of I'm going to take you with me and show what it's like. And I'm going to, and, and quite often, I'm going to do something stupid there. Like, yeah. you look at sort of like old man Murray doing their um, time to create system or whatever. Yeah. And the idea of people doing comedy stuff in games is also in what I was talking about. But the way it was very rapidly t- taken is, you know what the most essential stuff yeah the way let's let's all write about the writer rather than the game right like the writer is the writer is always meant to be the filter not the you know the subject yes and i would also like to stress i'm pro that that form of writing as well in the same piece i also in the manifesto i say and that objective reviews are also great or quotation mark object you know yeah. i was always somebody who wants to see as many different forms of writing as possible and this was one form i thought was interesting yes and it just took off when it sort of became i said this this thing people saw themselves in, I guess, or for better or worse. The moment when I realised it was, like, it had definitely gone places. It's like when the New York Times did a piece that mentioned it. Yes. That was fun. I mean, I, I saw the Escapist's original launch document, which they showed me, because I wrote something for the first episode. And this, we'll have a new games journalist direction or direction in the, in their pitch document. And that's like, that, that's not what I was thinking when I came home from the pub. The idea. It got people sort of, I said the word permission earlier, and yes. I think it's again, in some ways it gave people permission to think like, I said, why not? You know, you, in some ways me acting like a complete idiot in public gave people permission to sort of go, maybe I could be a, my own kind of idiot. Yeah. And the best stuff is always people who um, made it themselves, as in, this is who I am, and this is where I've done in games, and what, this is why I love these moments, and brought it to us. Because like, I mean, the weird thing, for all the controversy about it at the time, the stuff on RPS we did was New Games Journalism. Obviously, we never said it was. Mm. They're some of my most popular pieces. Because right. people just like humanity. Yes. You know what I mean? that you know Because we play games because we're humans. And people sharing stories. I mean, for me, it was always the way you would talk about a game if you're in the pub with somebody. And then this happened. 
oh my god you know that <laughs> yeah it was a it was a fun time don't mention the war as, as we are running joke on rps <laughs> well let's uh it seems like this would actually be a good time to come to your fourth game because it comes from the year i think when you wrote your manifesto and we mentioned it right at the start as well uh tell us about your your fourth game oh yeah thief deadly shadows Thief is one of my literal, it's my velvet underground. You know, if, if, if I'm the last of bangs in this metaphor, they are my velvet underground, looking glass software. And they, of course, looking glass are closed by then. Thief is the, the the most important stealth game of 1998. And that's literally me asking Mel go solid outside for a fight. Yeah. Like, it's the one which people ripped off because it, it, it uses sound and darkness and light. It's the one where all the other games, oh, this is the way which is analog. This is basically like Defender, yep. uh, as pure as that. But it's scary. It's really, really scary. Way back around 2000, I did an interview with uh, Randy Smith, uh, the designer, who was the lead on Thief 2 about fear. I did a big, very for one of my first serious pieces of game design about how fear works. And of course, that's a very cliche topic now in games. I would think mine was pretty good and early, so I don't think many people had done it before then. But I made, viewed him at length, like about 15,000 words with this email train back and forth. Yeah, And the conversation basically led to um, him putting the theory he actually laid out to me that I forced him to into practice in yeah. Thief 3 and the, the level being the cradle, which I, of course, then wrote about enormously, yes. you know. And so this that's the most beautiful bit of criti- crit- what a critic can do, as in I'm a, a mirror and sounding board mm. and um, muse even, let's say, for like a designer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that kind of, yeah. like, not that I'm trying to influence them, but I'm just trying to prod them and they have to think about what they mean. So all this stuff is in the game. It's, it's elegant. I mean, it's really beautiful in lots of ways. The problem is it's not as good as we wanted it to be. Like, it's a really good game, but, like, it's at the exact moment when you're trying to do stuff for the Xbox as well. Mm. And so there's limitations to what Thief can do due to the cross-development. Yes, yeah. And that's something we didn't really, even I didn't admit, because it was so good, I didn't want to say that. Yeah. Because I also knew, if it doesn't sell, these games go away forever. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not like, because it's still definitely worth, I, I wouldn't change its score or anything, but, like, this is where we are. There was this fascinating period around circa 2000 where lots of really interesting games happened and none of them sold well enough, like Sacrifice is the one I always think of, mm. and Messiah. And they went away forever. <laughs> you know? Uh, and I loved, and it took quite a long, and after this sort of period where these games failed, it took quite a long way until Immersive Sims came back with the in the 2010s again. And, and you know, Bioshock was one of those, you know, you might see Bioshock as the more successful version of what these games were, well, what Thief was. And that's what I think about, like, it's, um, if we could make it better, we could have, you know, brought Breath of the Wild forward at least 15 years. <laughs> and a lot of my stuff is like, if only they, these these blows had landed correctly. Right, yeah. There was one article I was, uh, I never actually wrote, I sort of half-pitched it. And it was a series of alternate histories of 
let's change history and make one game different. And it was always like, let's make a uh, uh, Matthew Smith, the guy who designed, uh, you know, uh, Jet Set Willy. Let's make him into Miyamoto. Let's make him be the person who actually shapes what the old future platform games are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that those kind of alternate histories really interest me. Yeah, so interesting. Um, and that's what I'm kind of doing here. And imagine, like, if FIFA changed the idea of what a mature game could be and found an audience as big as Call of Duty. Um, <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't. You know I mean, that th these are impossible. Yeah. That's, that's why I'm putting them into a perfect console to make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, this is the first game which I um, mentioned my future wife. Oh. Uh, it's like the, when I reviewed it, the, the first line is something like, uh, the girl looks at the screen, think, ah, thief is about the running and the hiding. That's my other cliche, always just mentioning random people in real life. Yeah. That was always the thing, like, part of me was, I tried to buy sincerity by emotional transparency. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing like emotional stuff, it's about, it's not just me being exhibitionist. Mm -hmm. It's also me saying, okay, the fact I'm confessing this bit of heartbreak to you makes me you'll probably believe how i feel about i don't know zelda right 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 <laughs> why would i be telling you this yeah <laughs> and also this it's a great i mean so it's, thief's a great game but it's not great enough and that's always sometimes the hardest thing of all mm. let's um kira let's talk about your career in comics so we'll we'll whisk forward a little bit so you write phonogram and i remember that time you know being being your friend at that time and it all been quite exciting someone moving you know of course there have been other people working in uh, game journalism who had gone on to do other things. Charlie Brooker springs to mind from PC Zone going on to write Black Mirror. But you were you were sort of in a closer friendship group going off to do this other thing. And then you also launch Rock Paper Shotgun and then move out fully from that. Tell me about that that transition, I guess, of moving from an indie comic that you created to then going to work on you know some of these great monoliths of the entertainment industry like Marvel and Star Wars. This is the weird thing. I only got into comics properly circa 2000. Like that time when I was like at my peak at PC Gamer, that's when I fell in love with comics. And by the end of the decade, I'm writing Uncanny X-Men or Four. Uh, I can't pronounce Four. T-H-O-R. <laughs> you know? And that's a weird, quick journey. And like, I read them as kids. but it not like a quick journey, yeah. But not like an obsession. Not like the way I was into games. I just was into comics in a broad way. The advantage that was freelance from 2003 meant that when I started getting paid for comics, I could start just doing it. Because my basic way of doing it was during the day I worked on you know, games and then in the evening yes. I'll work on comics because the comics didn't pay to begin with due to reasons. But the second people started giving me money jobs, I could, yes. like, oh, they're now day jobs. Right. And it got to the point where I realized, wait, wait, wait. I looked at the money and realized I'm no longer a games journalist who's doing a comic guy. I'm a, I'm a comic guy who occasionally does games journalists. Right, yeah. And I sort of I flipped it in my head. And it was one of those things that was just very natural that allowed me to change over as people offered me work. It definitely, like, I only signed my exclusive with Marvel when I left RPS and it was, del and I deliberately held them off because I did it. I felt emotionally committed to Pete, to RPS in a way that I could not give the full attention to Marvel, even mm -hmm. though that was writing. It never changed how much I was writing. This is purely a psychological thing. Um, and especially when I left RPS, it was ready. That was, that was the great, that was the weirdness for, for me that, um, we had so, we got enough readership enhanced sales that all the people on staff were now getting a wage which was commensurate mm. with their work right so in other words and we could hire it was quince who ended up joining quince smith yeah that was which was an amazing you know and considering we made it from like string you know what i mean it's not like we're not like we had any backing uh <laughs> yeah. we had like one person we had a one company who gave us cheap service and that's the only real thing we had yeah but then you felt you were, felt free to to move into to write working for, for Marvel and and all of that full time. I wonder, you know, you you've throughout your career you've you've always been about breaking conventions, and we talked about you being an outsider and all of that, and you like playing with the form. 
Is did you have the freedom to do that when you're working on, you know, Iron Man? Is that what they wanted from you? I say it weirdly, it's like being a games journalist and train me in a in a few because obviously I'm like I'm quite highly strung in lots of ways. But working on a magazine, going to deadline, knowing that I'm gonna have my copy occasionally beaten up, a lot of rough edges are being off me. So like I'm I'm I come I came into the job. I'm religiously good at deadlines. I mean, editors mainly stop forgive stop telling me when they need scripts for because they know that I will know when they need a script and I will always be ahead of it. Like, and I'm very open to like working with artists and that collaboration aspect. So all that stuff I'm kind of trained for, which is nice. Yeah. But the other weird thing about comics is it's it's such a weird medium and it's so small, but there's so much power in. When I say power, I mean creative power, as in you can do stuff very quickly. Like I write a script in about a week. So it was, and it, that's a bit like the length of time it would take to write a long article. So in some ways, it's very similar rhythm. Like this week, I'm doing this. Like this week, I'm writing about um, breakup games. This week, I'm writing about Captain America's Punch Man. You know, so the the the, the same size of thinking, but also the in comics they kind of want the new spin. It's not like they want they want to like a Captain America they love, mm-hmm. but they also want to say if you just give Captain America, why would anyone buy it? They want the what's new, what's, what's new? new, yeah. And I was always remember like um, it's really pretty early on that I realised oh no they want me to be good, in other words like because that increases the brand equity in right. the same way Edge they had to choose the, my standard one Edge the cost of Edge is you never had a byline but they gave you the free, they want you to be the best writers in the world and that meant and by the context they got incredible writing out people what sort of guidelines are they giving you though because you know like you say Captain America is that is that is that is that true I mean obviously he has to wear the suit but then you know can you pretty much do whatever you want give him whatever characteristics or are they saying he's got to be this way and that way a strict job later on in my career I wrote uh, Darth Vader yeah uh, the Darth Vader comics when Disney got the license back and they were starting from scratch mm. and the job was basically do um a story between the end of A New Hope and the start of Empire for me, the jo- I, I could see the job there. There's okay, end of Dar- end of Star Wars. Darth Vader's made a complete dog's ear of it. Death Star's blown up. He's flying away. It's the biggest military disaster of all time. Yeah. If you watch the prequels, this is what the Emperor's plan was for like twenty years, and he's just messed it up. What an idiot! Uh, the start of Empire. He's more powerful than ever. Like Empire, you know, we think about Darth Vader just killing people. He doesn't do that in Star Wars. He only does that in Empire. So like, he's in a much better position. So what the hell happened? That's the story. Right, yeah. Uh, and also, like, he, between the two, he discovers something. Between those two movies, he discovers he has a son. Yeah. As in the last 20 years of my life have been a lie. Now, they never told me that. That's just me looking at the job and going, hey, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Because uh, this is the cool, this is the story. So kind of, that's uh, that's an example of a much more constrained job. Do you have to get that signed off? Do you, what you just did there, that sort of synopsis, do you go, this is what I want to do, yes or no? You pi- Basically, this, yeah, exactly, I like, pitch it. This is, this is what, this is how I see it. And normally, like if I pitch, for example, I want to have Darth Vader do like t- techno funk adventures, they'll probably say no, but I'm never going to pitch that. Right, right, right. But going to Marvel or something like that, which we have a lot more, because the comics are still the lead, you know, the comics are the comics, that they're the, they're not like a secondary part of the <laughs> business. They are the, almost like the leading edge. And <clears throat> they kind of, I'm very aware that like when I do stuff, it's like, this is what they want, probably want to mine for movies in five, ten years. Sure, time. exactly, yeah. So yeah, yeah. you want to do something ahead. It's the, it's the spring from which the river then flows, right? Yeah. Like, you know, a cheap R&D is, is the chance. <laughs> but like, so what you're okay, what can we do with these characters? So like you do the same brain. Okay, what makes these characters tick? What's interesting? What hasn't been done? Hmm. What is a useful angle? And that's the, that's the very much a critic brain. Part one side. And the other side is like, I'm quite known in comics as a formalist. Since I came to comics, like I came to comics, not the comic characters. So like, I, there's a lot of my work, especially in books like The Wicked and Divine, and the book I did for Marvel called Young Avengers, 
well, I'm, I'm basically doing comics about the comic medium. Well, I guess we can do this. Look, look what happens if we do different sorts of paneling. Well, well, you know, that, uh, I work with a guy called Jamie McKelvey and the beats and the rhymes of it to go cross some strings on the metaphor. The idea that, you know, the comics are a rhythm. If we use a panel grid in this way, if we drop, you know, that kind of stuff. And yeah. it's quite aggressive. And there's yeah. meta wall breaking, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah they do want you to be good because that's the best way. I mean, of course, judging what good is, is the trick. Yeah, and, yeah. and quite often, sometimes somebody's aesthetic just doesn't match Marvel's. Yeah. So that's kind of the art. Right. I've got, I've got a very practical question. You know, I said in the introduction that you created this character for Star Wars. Uh, and like you say, it's sort of the comics are the things that they can get mined for books and well, for, for films, certainly, and all of that. That's the world, certainly right now, while we're talking. How does it work when you, you know, if you create Yoda, do you have any rights over that? Surely Mr. and Mrs. Yoda created Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> honestly the situation is complicated we've worked for higher comics there are some payments that people get given in various different ways and mm -hmm. some of it is quite is not huge and some of that really varies mm -hmm. i mean um the only character in, i've done for star wars has reached a uh, screen is a guy called black chrysanthemum who is like an enormous evil wookie in the, ah, okay. the book of uh, boba fett mm -hmm. who is maybe the very weird experience of like suddenly i made this character up with um me and salva made this character up uh and then like Six years later, the entire internet is bursting after this enormous Wookiee. <laughs> and also, you mentioned not being able to pronounce characters. I wrote that name. I had no idea how to pronounce it. So genuinely, I tuned in to discover how do you say the character's name. So for, for Marvel and Whitby, we're fully limited. Right, yeah. Does that, does that affect your creative approach then? Are you thinking, oh, I'm not going to give them any characters? <laughs> to be honest, like, most of the characters you would give to Marvel are characters that do not exist outside the context of Marvel. The problem with like Marvel and DC is that the what DC was basically made in the 1930s, Marvel was basically made in the 1960s. They have these these existing characters who all have their who are their niches. You know, if I made a character at DC, he was all you know, this most powerful character on Earth, and he's and they're incredibly nice, and everyone loves them, and they're, they're the paragon of good. That character's Superman. I can't create that character. That niche is filled. I see. Much like yeah. and much like baby boomers, they're never going to retire. So when you're doing stuff for Marvel and DC, you're looking for, okay, what doesn't exist? Right. Where can we find a, a niche for character? You know, like, I, I really enjoy my work for hire. Like it's a, uh, it's, it's a challenge. Like basically when I get, they phone up and say, Hey Kieran, can you do something cool with Eternals? I go, maybe let's, I'll go away and think about it. But creating something from scratch is the real work. And then you own it all. Do I put more stuff into him? Yeah. But that's only because it's a bigger vessel. Mm. You know, the, there's a thing about the, the, some work is bigger than other work. And I, I, if I did the stuff I did to, um, say die or wickdiv mm. to a marvel book it just wouldn't work yeah like you cut like you know it just it's not the right stage for it i think the most important thing like the note behind it all is you saw Hamid the kirby they'll do that to you too like mm. there is an element of like you go into you know where the body you know we've been around so we know what the deal is it's yeah. not like i'm surprised by it i've got the emotional contraceptives that's the way i describe it these aren't my characters you know i am a i'm a nanny i'm not a parent and then you go from there what a great way of putting it. Thanks, Kieran. Okay, thanks for talking about that. Right, let's come to your fifth and your final game on your on your perfect console. Tell us about this one. This is Boiling Point.
I, I try to think of a game which basically summed up almost all the stuff we've talked about. Yeah. Because Boiling Point is crazily broken. Uh, lots of the point of poetry. Basically, Boiling Point is you are a guy whose daughter's been kidnapped and you've got to go to a South American country to try to find them. And it's an open world game, and a Grand Theft Auto, but in a more serious mode. <laughs> like it's not it's not as cartoony, and you're basically just stuck in this environment and exploring it and trying to find your daughter and following clues and um, missions. Am I right in thinking that you reviewed this game in quite an interesting way back in the day? Yes, I was about to say, the, the, the however is quite important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really work very well. I gave it three scores. So the way I, I, I reviewed it, like, one, I just talked about the positive side. As I, however, I talked about my experience and stuff I love about it. And then I talked about, it just doesn't work. Like, and generally, if you want to have the most fun you'll ever have, like that may not be true. Like, I hope your life is better than this, but like, it may be the most fun you've ever had. Google up the original patch notes of Bowling Point. It's, it's like a list of poetry. It's like a size of moon corrected. Curtains no longer make metallic noise when hit by dagger. Jaguars no longer fly. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> the Jaguars have been grounded. Like, basically, Jaguars didn't understand um, the y-axis so basically on the floor and if you're like on a tr- if you're on a tree i was on the top of a pyramid that's where i was looking down this jaguar walking around a mile away and, and it just jumped and just soared through the air <laughs> and i was like what the hell and it through the right eyes that's amazing yeah <laughs> so like, i think i gave it nine out of ten for my positive review three out of ten for my negative one and in the end i actually gave it eight it's my one okay but the classic one for me is like I mean, if you, it's not objective it's never objective I'm just giving my angle mm-hmm. and other games like I don't know Earth Defense Force mm-hmm. uh, like the classic ant based shooter which I also adored mm-hmm. a review should just tell you whether you want to buy it or not yeah. like you know it's like you can't say I was hiding stuff from you and boiling points this is a hot mess I think there was a line I put in there actually this probably sums up so much of my aesthetic if this doesn't sell the lesson that publishers will learn is not don't make buggy games it will be don't fund ambitious ones right yeah and that is yeah. that was white boiling point for me i also said the line like you know if they had another year yeah i'm not sure they would have fixed the bugs i think they would have carried on adding systems yeah. literally it's a game where you can make it like if you if you're someone tries to like the stealth game moments and someone finds you with a gun you'll have to press the button to try to talk yourself out of it like oh i was just passing through mate you know what I mean? That's perfect. Maybe they'll just start doing millions more systems. Yeah. And that's like, I, I so admired them. You know, like it's such a, because it's, it's obviously broken, but it's also got so much stuff at work. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you're willing to just occasionally go, yeah, the moon's the wrong size. Yeah. That Jaguar is flying. Like if you just let that go, you've got an almost meditative game. It's just like, oh, it's what Jim loved about Stalker. He likes the, the isolation uh, of it. And boiling point, you just drove a lot. Not in an interesting graph after auto way, just down muddy roads. No quick travel, <laughs> muddy road drive. And that gave it a weird sense of like casual immersion, that slow play game, you know, which is kind of ahead of its time almost. Yeah, it does lodge in your memory more games like that that are sort of a little bit annoying, but it's <laughs> that friction can be, can, can lodge in your head, can't it? That's it? The thing that worked for me is like the fact that driving was fun. Like, you know, basically driving a car is nice. Mm. Well, that's kind of it. It's like, this is a nice car to drive. I'm okay with driving. So I genuinely liked it. And there's a lot of, I mean, I could genuinely, when I was walking around before this podcast, listening to the uh, the, the amazing bloody interview, 
was um, there's so many other broken games I've loved in that kind of that way. Yeah, uh, and some of them are like games I'll go out to bat for properly, as opposed to this, which is very much more a kind of. I don't, no, I love it. I think it's a great idea. That the idea of a perfect boiling point, I think that would be that would be quite quite incredible to play. But um, maybe a perfect boiling point would actually just be even more broken. <laughs> like it's have more and more ideas in, yeah. and just like this enormous blamange of impossible, this catamari of joy of like not working. Um, nice. All right, Karen. Let's look at your console. So we've got Dark Scepter, XCOM, UFO Defense, Outcast, Thief, Deadly Shadows, and Boiling Point. All of which have been perfected by this miracle machine. How are you feeling? I'm pretty proud. Like honestly, they said, uh, you know, uh, uh, QA. Now don't need QA anymore. We've got this miracle console nice. of mine. Okay, we need a we need a name for your console. I'm sure you've had to put names to creative projects many times in your career. What are, you, what are we going to call this one? I'm really bad at names. I'm going to call it the Cyrillic Mega Biff, to, you know, to drag out an old Amiga, pa- so an old PC gamer running joke. Right, the Cyrillic Mega Biff. What's that? What's that reference? I've no idea. Right, <laughs> it's so long ago now that we just started calling things the Cyrillic, uh, Cyrillic Mega Biff. We just randomly use them. Uh, so if you had a choice to enter any name in any place, you say Cyrillic Mega Biff. I'm an Amiga guy, you know. I'm used to things with not particularly great names. I was in the office the name that we was announced. You know what I mean? Yes, that, that was the best day in all video game history. Well, it's been great, Kieran. Just just before I let you know, uh, let you go, a really practical question, I guess, for for anyone who's listening to this who wants to start writing comic books. What's the best way in 2023 to do that? Tell you what, the reason why I started doing comics, apart from loving them, was um, I loved the lack of permission. I use a word I used repeatedly earlier. It's not like TV which is expensive. It's not like film. It's not, I mean, it's novels are perhaps the only other thing that works. They are the world's cheapest visual medium. You can just do it. For me, it was like breaking into comics and like doing stuff for companies. That's a different thing. And for me, I spent like several years doing my own stuff, like alongside the games journalism. I did web comics. I did, um, I, I ran anthologies. I just did a lot of stuff and just do it. I mean, that, that you can sit down and so you can just start running a novel. You can start running a comic. You don't think, oh, I haven't got an artist. You just think, okay, what could I do? Like I did, a, I did like a three hundred page photo comic of of the people around Bath. With whenever time I was clubbing, I took photos. Then at the end of every two weeks, I looked at the photos and went, "Okay, how can I cut these up and turn them into a story?" Which is kind of one way I learned to write comics. Because one of the things about being a comic writer is you're writing for an artist, and that's both the strengths and the weaknesses of an artist. What can they do well? What do I need to actually try to cover, uh, or what do I just avoid entirely? Mm. And when you've got an artist as limited as you are, that's starting to teach you really important skills. Mm. And you may some people will go like. Well, I just want to, I want to write an exciting superhero comic. Oh, and like, well, you don't really want to write comics. Because, yeah. like, to find a story that fits what you can use. Oh, and, you know, I use collage, I use photo comics, I talk to other people. Look at XKCD, look at dinosaur comics. Just do it. Because by doing it, you will learn infinitely more than theory or even just scripts. And it's fun, you know, and creativity makes you better. Nice. Kieran, thank you so much for this and uh, for, for all your work as well, which... I and many, many other people have really appreciated throughout our lives. So thank you, Kieran. Thank you very much, Simon. And the feeling's mutual. You're an inspiration, man. Kieran Gillen, everyone. I hope that you enjoyed... That conversation as much as as I did. Um, I've known Kieran quite a long time. Uh, I definitely knew him by reputation before I knew him personally. Uh, He was really one of the brightest stars in the firmament of writers, 
covering video games when I was a young person and uh, someone to whom I looked up a great deal. I was trying to think back and trying to remember the first time that I met Kieran and uh, and I can't. Perhaps it was at ATP, the now defunct music festival that I think we both went to. Anyway, I would definitely would have been nervous the first time I met Kieran. So yeah, just so wonderful. These years later, I had to have a chance to, to talk to him about all that time of life and um, how far he's come since then and the, the good memories that he has writing about games. Of course, I started that interview by uh, asking him about that comment he made to me. I think we were in Nottingham for the opening of the Nottingham, for the opening of the National Video Game Arcade quite a few years ago. Uh, previous guest on the show, Sir Ian Livingston, was was there as one of the dignitaries to to open that, and that's when Kieran said that he sort of regretted some of his time writing games. So that's that point of view and perspective has obviously changed for him in the subsequent years, and I'm glad to hear that. I suppose you know things happened the way they happened, and they weren't going to happen any other way, were they? He uh, as he so clearly laid out in that conversation, many of the muscles that he developed making a magazine, hitting those deadlines, being able to fill a gap on the page with X number of words, learning to play with convention and with the frame that a magazine page gives you, all of that was useful training for, of course, his current vocation now working at the forefront of of comic book artistry, I would say. You can read about Kieran's work all over the shop, go on his Wikipedia, a very long entry there that will tell you about all the things he's done, but you can also head to kierangillan.com where there's an about page and you can read, read up on what comics he's done and subscribe to a newsletter. One thing that I uh, was hoping to ask Kieran about was his recent ADHD diagnosis, which I think would have been interesting to chat to him about. But um, yeah, time was getting away from us and I certainly wanted to cover off some of that uh, that later portion of the interview discussing his work in, in comic books. And also, I suppose, the uh, you know, he straddles these two worlds, writing for really what are, let's be honest, the the giants of the entertainment landscape at the moment, working on Marvel Marvel comics and Star Wars comics and all of that. And then, of course, all of his his uh, stuff that he makes himself and comes up with Jamie McKelvey and other artists. Most recently, Die, which uh, he has won many, many awards for, which is a sort of uh, comic book dramatisation of um, tabletop role-playing games. So, yeah, interesting to get his perspective on what it's like to have a foot in each of those worlds and the different tensions and also the similarities, the things that he's able to do with, say, Iron Man, uh, that he can also do with a character of his own invention. I, you know, don't listen to loads of interviews with comic book writers, but uh, that was certainly all new to me. Perhaps it was to you too. I hope you enjoyed it. I have to say as well, hearing Kieran speak and reminisce about some of those years around the late 90s and the early 2000s when video game magazines were really in their pomp and had 
such huge circulation figures, you know, running to 250,000 copies a month, up to half a million or whatever it was with the very biggest titles, you know, and uh, there was just so much excitement around that. It does feel a little sad that perhaps those days are, are behind us and... Uh, and maybe coming into right about video games, it's not quite the the same. Doesn't have quite the same allure as it did in those days, because of course it's uh, not really a financially viable route for anyone. I'm not sure it was back then either, to be honest. But um, it's definitely not uh, in the 2020s. So, yeah. Anyway, nice bit of nostalgia there, nonetheless. If uh, you've enjoyed this episode and you would like to get more involved with My Perfect Console, then head along to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole there for a small amount. For the amount of a monthly games magazine, you can become a supporter. You'll get your episodes early and ad-free and a range of other benefits, including some bonus episode content. Um, So, yeah, it's just a great way as well to support the show and help grow it. Uh, as we get deeper into this our first year um yeah thank you to those of you who do the community's been growing slowly but surely um and i'm grateful for that september this month has been a really great month for the podcast we've had so many listeners um thanks i guess in part to some of the news stories that have come out of some of these recent episodes so if you're new to my perfect console then welcome it's wonderful to have you please do go back listen to some of our previous episodes download them all Uh, there's some very interesting people and some wonderful chats about their game choices okay i think i'm going to leave it there for now for this week uh it's been it's been a long episode thank you for staying till the end and i will be back again next week with one more guest, their five choices, and one more perfect games console. Till then, bye bye.